Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 79. And today we have another special guest, of course, as always. But let me just tell you uh, right away, if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, you know, make sure you head over to YouTube where you can not only listen to our sultry voices, but get the full visual experience in full Technicolor as well. Uh, now, again, episode 79. Today's guest is the internationally acclaimed, award-winning, National Geographic and Life magazine photographer, educator, author, Nikon ambassador, and by far one of the nicest people in the photography business, a living legend. Give it up for Mr. Joe McNally. Joe, how are you? Hey, Joe. Good. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on um, on the podcast. Uh, we've, it's, it's taken a little while in the planning for various reasons, but we're so glad we finally managed to get you on. No, it's a pleasure to be uh, be talking with both of you. Yes, it was a little bit of a, you know, convoluted approach. You know, we all had so many things going on, but that's kind of the way of the world right now. Yeah, it's been it's been a tricky time, I think, for for everyone. Um, you know, predominantly because of the pandemic, and then you know, I don't know what it's like uh, over where you are on the East Coast, but certainly over here in the UK, things have started to kind of open up again, which has brought with it its own problems and and so on. Um, but how has the whole pandemic been for you? You know, uh, horrible, you know, as it was for everyone. But, you know, given the the life I've led, which has been largely on airplanes, the small personal silver lining for me was that all of a sudden I was home, you know. And mm -hmm. so there were many things that uh, needed attention that I had not really paid attention to because of our studio's pace and the fact that I was gone a great deal. So, yes, it, it was damaging and awful and lots of controversies surrounding it in our country. Uh, nobody can seem to get, you know, their heads on straight about it, or, or at least some folks are, are contentious about the whole thing and trying to bounce back from this. So those are, are that's a bumpy road indeed, uh, hoping that we can smooth the path out, you know, at some point, you know, and uh, beyond that professionally we're getting back to work i've been traveling more shooting more that's all good stuff but the the hardcore aspects of the pandemic were uh difficult to weather but the positive aspects were that i was home and i was able to do things uh around here straighten out archive kind of plan for the future time home where my wife and i were experimenting in the kitchen and put on about 10 pounds <laughs> you know, and things like that that were fun wrote a new book and, uh, and again just tried to uh, breathe a bit for the first time in a long time where I knew I did not have to get on an airplane you know tomorrow I'm dying to know Joe what was the most experimental thing you tried in the kitchen <laughs> uh, well we you know for me, kind of experimental was I started gardening, you know, which I had never done before. And this sounds very mundane, of course, but for me, it was kind of revelatory. I grew tomatoes and basil and beets and things like that out on the deck. And then we, we instituted pizza night. So I got a couple of pizza stones and Annie and I started uh, creating our own pizzas on like Friday night would be our have a, have a glass of wine and make some pizza and try to forget about the pandemic kind of, you know, evening. Yeah. So can, can I come round to yours on Friday nights? <laughs> Absolutely. Always welcome here at, <laughs> is, the, 
it sounds like I sense the similarities because because Nick and myself also have uh, we we also started pizza night, which basically usually happens after every uh, podcast recording. <laughs> ah, okay, all right, that's right. Yeah, it's getting it's getting close to dinner time for you guys, you know. So uh, yeah, um, yeah, uh, it uh, you know I've been a professional photographer for forty years, so my archives are pretty extensive. A lot of those older archives, and all of them really, are, are film-based. So I started winnowing through that. We probably threw out, oh, wow. at this point, probably several hundred pounds of, of transparencies. Uh, wow. Dating back to the 1970s. So, and also things, you know, the value of a photographer's archive. Um, you know, things were not positive economically for photographers during the pandemic. But one thing that was helpful to us was that uh, I spent time with both Donald Trump and Joe Biden in the uh, in the late '80s, and those are historical takes now. It's not current material. Yeah. But uh, I shot Trump for a cover of Newsweek, and I shot uh, a lead story for People Magazine on Joe Biden, and so those pictures were in demand. So, so just a question there: played. who was who was easier to work with, Trump Joe or Biden? Biden. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Biden is a is a decent man, and and uh, affable to a fault uh, we got along really well and he still has the picture i made of him that was the lead photograph he uses it now in in his instagrams he has it framed right behind the resolute desk oh and he recently oh, wow. did an instagram where he's holding that framed picture it's just a simple shot available light picture of him on amtrak but he is known his nickname is amtrak joe because he would take the amtrak every day into washington as mm -hmm. a senator during his senatorial career and because he lived in Wilmington and which is a pretty short throw on on Amtrak so he got the nickname Amtrak Joe fantastic so I don't know if I really want to know but what was it like working with uh, Donald Trump uh it was um challenging <laughs> let me choose my word um actually to me you know he just kind of treated me like a piece of equipment you know, right. uh, I was just this guy with a camera and uh, he did what I asked him to do. Uh, his ego is bottomless. Um, so he's perfect fodder for the camera. Never said no. Um, hmm. Was thoroughly thrilled at that point to be uh, heading for the cover of Newsweek. She was you know, on the cover. One of the worst cover photographs I ever shot. You know, oh. um, Newsweek was happy with it. I was like, you know, because he came out of a conference room. I was all, I was all set up in another room and he came out of a conference and he looked at me and goes, I've got three minutes. Let's shoot this cover. Wow. Okay. All right. You want to be like that? Go ahead and be like that. I'll shoot you for three minutes and, hmm. you know, we'll get this done. So, yeah. Cool. It was an interesting and laborious week. Yeah. I was pretty exhausted at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> you must have, you must literally have, you know, thousands of stories like that um, throughout your career. Well, the, the wonderful thing about being a photographer is that you, you, you do get to encounter a lot of life, you know, and you have a, an inside track uh, in a certain way because you are associated with the publication, you have a camera, you are there to document, record, etc. And so oftentimes people allow you access to certain areas of their lives or their businesses or whatever it might be uh, because they are participating in this story. So 
you get a bit of an insider look at lots of different things. And the wonderful thing is you are oftentimes sent to photograph people because they are so excellent at what they do. Be it um, a uh, uh, dancer or an actor, actress, uh, author, scientist, they are noteworthy. They are doing uh, excellent work. They are a cultural phenomena. They are whatever they might be. You're sent to photograph, so you are a witness to excellence, which is wonderful. This uh, this one photo of yours that uh, my my when I told my daughter that you'd shot that particular photo, she, my my, sm- my youngest daughter is ten, and she's a big Muppets fan, by the way. Um, and uh, I know that you shot um the the Muppets in mourning after Jim Henson's um uh death back in the back in the early nineties, wasn't it? Eighties. Oh, eighties. Yeah, it was in the uh, yeah, it was in the eighties. And I, I remember uh, when I. When I said to when I, when I told my daughter who our next guest would be, um, and I said to her, you know, he shot this photo. She goes, oh, I, you know, and she, so she could see the recognition in her face because she's a, like I said, she's a big Muppets fan. So am I, oh. incidentally. <laughs> yes, my my uh, my oldest daughter took that Life magazine into show and tell. She was kindergartenish, one a, yeah. one first grade, something like that, and the. Uh, um, so I was pretty cool there for a while because she brought that in. She said, my, my daddy knows Kermit. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> I, re- I remember when my, um, my daughter was in preschool and she did, uh, she did show and did show and tell there as well. And, um, and the night before she had to do the show and tell thing, uh, I was giving her a bath and, you know, and she asked me like why things, why things would drop into the bath water. And I said, well, it's a thing called gravity. You know, it's uh, it's a thing. You know, gravity. We're on a planet, and when you drop something, it always falls on the on the on the ground. So that's how I explained it to a I don't know five year old or something at the time. And uh, you know, we call that gravity. And then the next day, um, I picked her up from uh, from preschool, and the teacher came up to me and she goes, um, "That was a very interesting um, show and tell." I'm like, "Really? What? What did she do?" She goes, "Like, well, she just dropped her fluffy toy and said, and that is gravity." <laughs> Good for her. I heard the, the soul of brevity. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, Joe, um, Superb. take us back to when when your photographic career first started. Um, I take it you you really started in in a time when not only you know film was the thing, um, but also you know in a time when newspapers and uh, and magazine publications were on a completely different level. Um, from from the world of publications today, what was that like at that time? Um, it, you know, it was uh, thrilling and and rough around the edges and very ramshackle, you know, kind of uh, uh, endeavor compared to the very sleekly uh, technology. What am I trying to say here? The very sleek technology of today, which can facilitate immediate delivery. I mean, you know. Autofocus did not exist. Uh, you know, the menus that we associate with the cameras now did not exist. Your basic controls were, you know, shutter speed and f-stop. And uh, you had film in the camera, 36 exposures. You were manually focusing. You had to develop strategies around that. So you would be at an Olympics shooting film and you'd have to bang through 25 frames and then be maybe another loop around the track for the 
for the runners and you, do I have enough time to rewind and put a new cassette in or do I hold tight and just use the last 10 or 12 frame? I mean, you had strategies that you had were associated with film work. The upper, upper level of an ISO was, you know, in the neighborhood of uh, 1600, you know, and even then you'd run that through a Versamet at the newspaper or the wire service and it would have grain that you could drive a truck through. Uh, but there was there was forgiveness too. The New York Daily News, the dot screen was so rough that you could shoot a picture that was five feet back focused and it looked fine in the paper. So it was very, I don't know, wonderfully kind of haphazard, you know, uh, at that time. But it was also intense and very passionate because newspapers were very much alive. Magazines were a huge part of the cultural landscape. The Newsstands at the airports were chock-a-block with magazines that uh, were kind of essential, you know, to, you know, I would have Time, Newsweek every week, you know, Life every month, National Geographic. These were essential publications. Uh, not to say that news and all of that is not essential anymore, which is just delivered differently. Is that um, something you, that you miss from those days compared to how the things have evolved to today? I don't miss film, to be honest. I really don't miss film. Uh, you know, I imagine if I ever get to a point where, you know, I have some hobby time, maybe uh, I still have some older panorama film cameras I might mess around with. But wow. uh, in terms of the uh, urgency and immediacy and the quality now, uh, the digital is a clear winner. So I would not go back to film if I had the choice. And I would though, you know, uh, I, I do miss ink on paper. I, mm. I do uh, I do like the permanence of a magazine and the fact that we do are, are driven by clicks now and the clicks are very, very fast. I think that's a, a tough thing for young photographers because young photographers are coming along trying to establish an audience and they can do that through social media. That is definitely a path, but the, permanence of their work you know when you when you put something out there um you know people are clicking oh they like that they click and click and click okay it flies really fast but when i would shoot a cover of national geographic for instance you know certainly within the industry that had permanence that was on the newsstand for a month people would discuss it there was a reverberation that is harder i think to achieve now if, if you get my drift there you know it's yeah. because of the, the pace of digital has really overtaken all of us and yeah. uh, it's hard to be contemplative or really really reflect on a on a story if you are you know sort of madcap clicking through lots of sites which we oftentimes tend to do i'm guilty of it myself i start my morning and i'm you know on the new york times and and a variety of news sites just to see what's going on and it's all very quick and very cursory yeah. You know, I mean, Kay and I both grew up um, in the digital world. We didn't really have any, um, you know, sort of experience on film cameras. But, you know, you talk, you're talking about publications there and the, the permanence, if you like. The way the way I kind of look look at magazines like that, and I, I can't remember the last time I actually bought a magazine, right? It's all, all online. But there's something very intentional about picking up a magazine and going through it and coming across a photo that might be there and you 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 intentionally look at that photo and you'll take more time about it I was, I was talking about this with someone else um not yesterday or the day before 
um, but in relation to music and CDs or vinyl, that you intentionally put an album on to sit there and listen to it. Whereas today with streaming services, you don't get that. You jump from one song to another band to this, which is great, but I love the intentionality of something. And I have to say, I, I miss that kind of thing and picking up magazines each week and whatever it, it might be. So, yeah, I, can't, I, I get, totally get where you're coming from on that. I really do. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, yeah, intention is it's a good way to put it, you know. Um, and you also, to if you were intrigued by a set of photographs or a story, you had to buy the magazine. Mm-hmm which meant you really had intentions, you know, and this was intriguing enough, you know, and that was oftentimes my job as a photographer or always my job really, because I I got thrown stories at the National Geographic oftentimes that people weren't necessarily inclined to be interested in, you know, like giant telescopes. I mean, unless you're an avid astronomer, you know, giant telescopes isn't on the tip of your tongue. So my job would be to go out there and make pictures that would get somebody to stop and say, oh, oh, and then get involved in the story. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That, that's, it's funny you say that about, you know, if you come across a set of pictures, you'd like, you'd have to buy the magazine. I, um, you know, I've, uh, I've done some sort of training type stuff in the past. And there's something, if you think about a training video that you produce, if you give it away for free, that's one thing. People will go, oh, that's great. Thank you very much. That's brilliant. You could give the exact same copy video away, same thing for, let's just for argument's sake, a fiver and or a tenner or whatever it might be. And they will be so much more invested in learning what's within that video because they've parted with something. They've given something for that. And I, I, again, I just see it the same way with, with magazines like that. You're just more invested in what that magazine's trying to show you or, or, or tell you. Well, so I think, you know, very yeah. often, I, you know, I remember buying magazines because um, I, I love, I love the, physical, the physicality of it too. Um, and I used to buy magazines solely based on the front cover. You know, right. National Geographic is a really good example. Um, Newsweek is a good example. Um, Life magazine, stuff like that. You know, if that had a great cover picture... I would immediately be, you know, intrigued by it. And then of course you'd have to buy the magazine, you know, to find, find out more. And that was, that was the whole thing. It's always interesting that, you know, nowadays we, we still talk about great cover photos. Sure. Yeah. Banner pictures now are, are taking the place of covers, you know, trying to get you involved in a website or whatever it might be. Uh, photographers, you know, trying to establish, uh, you know, attention, driving attention to their sites, you know, the, the ch- choice of your the landing page, et cetera, is is also uh, very crucial. It's kind of the cover photograph for your business, you know, to try to intrigue people and pull them in. So it is, you know, I don't I don't say this with uh, regret because it is what it is. You know, I mean, I have a very good friend, uh, brilliant photographer named Greg Heisler, who uh, was really really changed the landscape of magazine photography and um, relationship to color. He was so strong. Uh, he shot more time covers, for instance, than any photographer walking the planet. And he's an educator now. And he looked at me at one point, he goes, Joe, this was going to happen whether we liked it or not. You know, so it becomes incumbent on you as a photographer to roll with the punch, adapt to the technology and see where the strengths of this particular technology might be in relationship to your work or your career 
or what you in the direction you choose to go in in the future. Did you have an inkling that these changes were going to happen? Like at the time when that you know when that uh, switch between you know from sort of analog film photography to digital happened, was the was the writing on the wall back then? Or well, a lot of a lot of uh, news organizations uh, got involved in digital, you know, pretty much right away because of speed of delivery. And I was not so much part of the news immediacy of the news at that point when digital, let's call it 2000, you know, uh, digital started to really, you know, the drumbeat got loud and, uh, I was not shooting news. I was not shooting anymore for magazines, um, or wire services that were driven by the weekly events. I was shooting more features for life or geographic longer term types of things, but I could see it coming. Um, in a funny way, I lived through, um, certain amount of digital backlash the editors of life came to me and said we want you to create an incredibly complex photograph we had in the monthly issue we had four page gatefolds as a as a monthly feature for a gatefold that shows the world that we do we still do real photography film photography we don't dabble in that nasty digital stuff we're not using the computer this is real we want you to you know, and we want to show how it can be done on a highly complex level. So uh, I shot Vanessa Williams, and I guess it was 13, maybe 12 or 13 changes that she undertook when she was on stage on Broadway in Kiss of the Spider Woman. And I shot it at Silver Cup Studios in Queens on soundstage, and I shot 8 by 10 and I used the millimetric gate over the sign arm so that when she would appear on stage, you would only expose this narrow strip of the eight by 10 sheet. And I would do like six of these on one eight by 10. And then the remaining six would be on another set. And then in the, in the gutter, they would put those two pieces of eight by 10 film together and present it to the magazine without any retouching. But if you made a single mistake, you would ruin a whole sheet of eight by 10. And it worked out. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting photograph to be sure. And Vanessa was a complete trooper. What a, an amazing pro. She really hit her marks. So exhausting. And then she went out and she went on Broadway that night. Oh my God. Um, but uh, so there was this bit of a digital backlash, you know, like we uh, heck with this digital stuff, but you couldn't hold it back. You know, I shot the first all digital story in the history of the national geographic. And that's been incorporated into the Library of Congress here in the United States because they view it as a watershed in the visual history of the magazine. So what are you going to do? You know, life life goes forward. I was just going to say, I mean, you know, by now, I, you know, I'm pretty sure that the sort of advantages of um, of digital photography have sort of, you know, revealed themselves, you know, over the over the years and, uh, and the way the technology has progressed has made at least my life a, a lot, a lot uh, easier. Sure. Sure. No, no two ways about it. And digital technology, the files, you know, and also, you know, the camera excellence, it's not just the digital aspects of the chip. It's also lenses have been improved, um, mm -hmm. speed, you know, uh, of uh, the glass and, and the, the fine tuning of all of this digital technology has resulted in files that Kodachrome, you know, just wouldn't be able to approach in terms of quality. 
Okay, when we were at the um, photography show here in the UK um, a few weeks ago, we were, um, we were talking with um, Canon. And do you remember, was it 100 to 300 new lens that they, they were bringing out, Cave? Yeah, I think so. Do you so. remember? <clears throat> yeah. I don't know, it's 100 to 300. It may even be one to four. I can't, I can't remember now. But we picked it up and we said, is this a model? It felt like there was no glass in it. And it, it was it, also... The, huh? It, it, it was an F8 lens, wasn't it? I think it was F8, else. yeah. Yeah, which was very bizarre. And it was just, but. it's like this. You just lift it with your little finger. The thing was unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. But yeah, so my point is, is that um, you know, technology is, is moving on, you know, just with, with lenses as well. It's just absolutely relentless right now. Definitely true. But I, again, you know, I just came off the Tokyo Olympics and I was shooting pictures at ISO 8000. <laughs> yeah. You know, that that wasn't even a real number in terms of ISO when I was shooting film. And in fact, it wasn't referred to as ISO, it was referred to as ASA. Um, and I, I tell you how I remember this. It's because I found some really old film cameras in the attic. And it's, you know, where the ISO dial was, it, it, uh, it had an ASA dial. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, when I was, you know, shooting Kodachrome, you know, um, for Geographic, I had ISO um, 25 and ISO 64. Most of the time. Then Kodak came out with uh, a Kodachrome 200, which is a film I liked very much. And, um, oh, my God, you know, uh, Kodachrome 200, so much speed. You know, that was amazing. You know, it's, uh, uh, the math has changed for sure. And in yeah. a good way, in a good way. I'm, I'm not being nostalgic here. I'm not saying, oh, you know, back in my day, when did, you know. <laughs> No, I could care less. You know, I mean, digital facilitates us as photographers. Uh, it enlarges our possibilities, enlarges our imagination, enlarges what we can do more on our own, you know, uh, without a huge crew and, you know, tons of lighting and grip and this and that. I mean, it was, uh, uh, I think, a revelatory thing uh, for all photographers that they could be, you know, effectively kind of a one-person band in many ways. Hmm. Shoot it, retouch it, deliver it. Yeah, that must have been that must have been quite different. Um, you know, when you when you first started, because I'm guessing um in the in the sort of you know press game, you would basically shoot the images and then deliver the roles. They would go to the lab and you, you know, there be everything after that would be taken out of your hands. Whilst now it's more of a thing of like, you know, shooting, um, editing, retouching, delivering it's sort of all now a one-man band type of a scenario. Sure. I mean, yeah, the, the ethic of, of working for magazines oftentimes was shoot it and ship it, you know. Mm. Um, that's why I'm a little bit easy about, you know, in, in digital, there's lots of concerns, you know, uh, uh, one-card slot, two-card slots, you know, backing things up. And, and we're very thorough about that, and I'm very precious about the digital stuff that we shoot. But if you want anxiety, you know, take... 300 rolls of Kodachrome that you've just shot in India, as I did once for the National Geographic, and put them into a FedEx box in Mumbai and ship it to Washington, <laughs> and then wait for three days to realize whether it had been a, it's arrived or not. And in that three days, you had no idea that all of your work, for which there was no backup for that previous month, was safe. Hmm. So that's anxiety, you know. Backing up oh. cards, multiple hard drives, easier. <laughs> yeah. A little easier on the nerves. 
Yeah. You know? <laughs> did you have um, any... Well, I'm, I'm sure it would be a sore memory if you did, but um, did you have any any of those go, go missing? I had one very unfortunate instance uh, of... wasn't a shipment. That, I, I mean, I've lost gear. I've lost lenses in shipping and sure. things like that, you know. But I had one instance at the Timing Lab where my entire take uh, was stolen out of the lab. Oh. And uh, it was... I had spent a week with Jesse Jackson in his first run uh, for the presidency. And I really battered the Secret Service to allow me to spend the night with Reverend Jackson. He was, um, at that point in his campaign, he was staying in the homes of poor people, as as he put it, economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. He would go in instead of staying at a fancy hotel, he would stay at somebody's house. And I just just banged on Secret Service to let me stay at a house at some point. And so they allowed me to do that. And uh, I, I stayed fully clothed all night long. I was downstairs. I slept in a chair, you know, but I was right there with Reverend Jackson when he was just ready to go to sleep. He was taking off his shoes and he looked at me. And he was like, man, aren't you tired of taking pictures? He was exhausted. And I made a, a couple of very significant photographs uh, of it in that first campaign. And uh, 60 rolls, maybe, of, of uh, black and white um, disappeared out of that timing clap. And that was, that was hard. That was hard because uh, I'd love to have a few of those frames back really yeah. well, you know. But thankfully, knock on wood, uh, shipping to the geographic was pretty uh, airtight, you know. And it, they had a, a, a place uh, in the magazine called Film Review. So you would ship 200, 300 rolls of Kodachrome. It would get processed, come into a place called Film Review. And those reviewers would eyeball very quickly every single frame that you shot. Because if you were in the field for three, four, five, six weeks, and one of your film plates was scratching, you would not know that. Hmm. So they would immediately check your film for technical malfunctions, uh, uh, lens, maybe diaphragm problems, whatever it might be. And then they would, they would reorder all of your Kodachromes and organize them vertical and horizontals and do a black stripe along. So the editor would then take the whole stack and put black stripe down into a thing called the Garrett box, which was a, um, a viewing screen that all the editors had. It was it was developed by Bill Garrett, who was the editor of the National Geographic. And so it was a Kodak carousel basically grafted onto a projection box. And so it would make it easier for the editor when they would get a tub of film that might be 200 rolls big, they would just look at the black stripe, dump it in, start hitting the button. So everything was maximized at that point for uh, speed of viewing of Kodachrome slides. That's that's unreal. I'd love to see that. It just uh, it's just a it's a bit of gear that you know people like Kay and myself just have not seen. <laughs> I'd love to <laughs> see true. that. What a unique was, way of doing it. It was standard issue at the Geographic. Yeah. Uh, the whole place was geared up. Basically, it was built on the idea of shooting Kodachrome. Phenomenal. Uh, now you mentioned um, a little while it. ago that you. Um, you've come back from shooting the Tokyo Olympics. What was that like? It was, it was uh, odd and wonderful and stressful, you know, all those things. I mean, 
uh, shooting Olympics is always hard work. Uh, you just, you know, it's like jumping out of the airplane, you know, there's no going back, you know, so you're looking at when you get there, the preamble days, final, you know, you're looking at 18 straight days with no let up 20 hours a day. Cool. And, um, you know, uh, and then constantly planning, et cetera, uh, you know, thinking, leapfrogging yourself mentally to try to anticipate what you're going to do next, what you're going to do next, et cetera, planning your days out, all of that. Uh, it was odd because there were no fans in the stands at Tokyo. Um, but it was also wonderful because the athletes performed as they always do magnificently and they lift us all up because they are, their endeavors are so just astonishing. And so it's always an honor to be able to witness that again, witness the excellence. And uh, it was, um, I'm, I'm glad I did it. You know, there was a lot of controversy about the games beforehand, but the Japanese people as you know, the volunteers, staff, everyone, they just rallied. And they pulled it off. They really pulled it off. Yeah. And my hat's off to them. They, they did a great job. With such a large event like, like the Olympics, do you, are you, are you going there with the intention of trying to shoot, you know, for want of a better phrase, everything? Um, or do you have a set scope um, that you're, you're, you're going there to shoot, whether that's a particular event or a particular side to the games that isn't perhaps the, you know, the athletics, let's say? Good question. Um, when I did 2016 in Rio, I had worked out with my editor. I was shooting for Sports Illustrated. And I worked out with my editor that I would do, in the initial going of the Olympics, I would do kind of a portrait of Rio. And so I didn't go to any of the events, hardly, in the first few days of the Olympics. I spent my time in the neighborhoods and the favelas of Rio mm -hmm. and made arrangements to get in there and gain access. And I had a fixer and all of that. And, uh, but immediately prior to the games, um, that particular editor got fired. And so no one had any kind of tether to that sort of a project. So I think, you know, the editors back in New York were like, you know, what's he doing? You know, um, I mean, this is, uh, no, this isn't Michael Phelps. You know, the, you know, this is a bar in Rio, you know, I mean, <laughs> send him, you know, to the sports. So I dropped off of uh, my, my Rio beat and I engaged with the games and, you know, I, I had a, an assigning editor at that point, sending me here and there for Tokyo. Uh, it was different. I was shooting with uh, Zuma press, which is a small kind of a boutique agency that services press concerns worldwide and they gave me kind of a, a kind of a, a ambassador without portfolio type of an agreement i could go and shoot anything i wanted and so i tried some new sports and and then i also tried some tried and true stuff uh, gymnastics and uh track and field you know or as it's called at the olympics it's called athletics but uh, the gymnastics were uh, fraught with drama, you know, because of Simone Biles. So I was glad I was there for both of her big nights. Mm. And, uh, and then I, I, I do enjoy track and field because there's a tremendous variety to track and field. There's things going on simultaneously, which is great. So again, being a one person band at that point, shooting, editing, delivering, I could, 
try to strategize. So I would go oftentimes to athletics. I would have an 800 and then I would have a uh, 120 to 400 millimeter lens on the Nikon system. I was shooting D6s. And so I could find a position and with the 800, I could reach someplace, you know, an event that was happening across the field or something like uh, in the, in the inner field events. Um, I, I, I had no access to uh, be close to the, the actual event in, in the infield. Those were highly restricted positions. Sure. Again, even more so than normal because of COVID. So like at boxing, I think there was only one ringside photographer. Uh, whereas there's normally 10 or 12. So, uh, so I tried to strategize so that I could cover the high jump at the same time, cover the finish of a 400 millimeter, uh, 400 meter run, something like that. You mentioned that you did perhaps a couple of different sports that you hadn't done before. Um, mm. what, what, what were they? How, how did you find, find those? Would you do them again? <laughs> sure. Absolutely. I shot, um, uh, the surfboard competition, you know, oh, wow. uh, which was, yeah. which was great. And I shot, uh, the, uh, skateboard competition. I wanted to say rollerboard, <laughs> but it's not rollerboard, it's skateboarding, um, <laughs> which was a, uh, you know, brand new gold medal sport. And it was wonderful to shoot that because they're kids, really. I mean, they're wonderfully talented, you know, super young, uh, vibrant, joyous. And that was, that was definitely fun uh, to shoot that. And uh, let's see, uh, uh, beach volleyball was something I, I don't cover hardly ever. And I think the last time I had shot that was, was uh, Lord, uh, maybe Sydney, you know, uh, back in Sydney. So, yeah, I tried to mix and match some new uh, kinds of sports, which I was really unfamiliar with, with, again, some tried and true stuff. I always try to shoot wrestling. Greco-Roman wrestling is, mm. is always great to shoot because the, the bodies make such powerful shapes. And, and uh, I try to shoot the lighter weight wrestlers because their strength to body weight ratio is so powerful that they can really throw each other around. Uh, the real big guys, the heavyweights, they just, they're like a couple of big bears. They kind of paw at each other, you know? And uh, so that's always great. I, I like to shoot weightlifting. I was there for a gold medal um, weightlifting uh, uh, effort, you know, was, which was also, I think, a, a world record. Uh, and yeah, you know, I, I love also to shoot table tennis. Hard sport to shoot, you know, you yeah. think, oh, yeah, back and forth, but so fast so fast yeah. uh and it's, it's at hard that level yeah. yeah not not like me i can barely get it over the net but you know you can try to shoot me one day uh, that'll be easy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a slow enough shutter speed for that <laughs> so you know one, one of the one of the first events actually it may have been the very first event after after the the lockdown here that i shot a sports event was uh cage fighting <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> you know what? It's the first time I've ever, I've never shot a cage fight before, but it was an interesting thing. I think there were 18 or 19 fights on that evening. Um, and I shot all of them and I was the only photographer there. So I had, you know, immediate access to everything. Um, but what struck me was, you know, when you had the kind of skinnier guys going at it, there was a lot of like airtime, like they would throw each other around and, you know, you, you know, they spend a lot of time in the air basically. But as soon as you get the big guys, uh, like the heavy weights, whatever, you know, uh, coming in the ring, there wasn't much happening. 
they were literally like you like you said earlier, like two big bears hugging each other. <laughs> and that was it. Like <laughs> okay. That's not doing it for the action shots for me, but hey, you know, interesting experience. God, yeah. Joe, do you, with these, like, take, if, no, let's just take skateboarding just as an example there. Do you do much preparation for that sport when you haven't shot it before or you haven't shot it in a long time? So you understand, I guess, the rules of that particular sport and where people are perhaps going to be and the type of things that they're going to be doing? You do try to do some research. I watch some videos. Uh, everything here at our studio is a team effort. Uh, my studio manager, Lynn, has been with me for 32 years and my wife Annie is our director of social media marketing and she really teamed up with me for the games because she did a lot of preamble research and then started formulating um, you know maps uh, for me I had a whole folder that uh, we had distances and bus routes from my hotel uh, every day so I could factor whether I could get uh, only one venue in or two or maybe even three depending on the travel time and the silver lining of pandemic games was that the normal traffic associated with an Olympics was not as bad as it ordinarily would be. Uh, so you could possibly segue from place to place. So, and then I would also uh, do my basic captions and I would relay those to Annie back here over the internet and then she would fine tune uh, the captions and then FTP them to Zuma. So it was really very uh, teamwork oriented. And so Annie did a lot of research. I was watching videos and she was observing trends and she would send me uh, emails overnight saying, I think you should do this. This is trending. This is going to be big. You know, so-and-so is, is, is huge. You should, you know, so it's really kind of a, uh, a, a very, collaborative effort here at the studio because we were all in it was uh, you know i had uh, been working on the idea of going to the tokyo olympics almost since the conclusion of the rio games so and, and then it became five years instead of four years so we really uh, we really went after it i mean as far as i remember um the pandemic really hit just before just before the tokyo games were supposed to happen the first time around wasn't it it's um they got cancelled at a relatively late notice, as far as I remember. Yeah, they were reluctant to cancel, obvious. Um, I came home in 2020. I came home from Romania on a flight through Amsterdam on March 15th. And that was the last <laughs> time I was on an airplane until I flew to Tokyo in uh, 2021. So, yeah, they lingered after that. March, April, things just kept getting worse. And they finally gave up, said yeah. no games this year. Huh. Which was rough. That had to be crushing for a lot of the athletes. Yeah. I was going to say it's horrendous because I, I've read some stories of athletes who had, you know, they obviously when after the games were cancelled and they started getting rescheduled that they got injured and then couldn't take part. I couldn't even begin to imagine how that feels. You, it's something you work your, basically work your entire life towards and you can't go because of cancelled games and then you can't go because you get injured. It just... It's just shocking. I can't. I can't really fathom that in my own head how I would feel about it. Especially too, with I've worked with a lot of Olympians. Even if even in years I did not do the Olympics, I oftentimes would work with Olympic athletes, and it's really meticulous as they start to ramp up because they want to reach their physical peak 
at the time of the game. So their workouts are all designed very intricately to keep building, building, building. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's like getting a, you know, a blowout on the highway and all of a sudden your, your tire just goes and you have to pull over to the side of the road at a dead stop. It's, it's rough. It's very rough for them. Yeah. Now I know that uh, uh, Nikon were testing the the Z9 um, at the Tokyo Games. Did you uh, did you get your hands on one? Nope. Shot all D6. Never saw a Z9 while I was there. Uh, so when we spoke to Nikon um, at the photography show only a few weeks ago, we were sort of hopeful that they would, um, you know, unravel or un unveil it um, at the show. But uh, unfortunately, we weren't that lucky. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's coming. You know, that's, yeah. that's all the, that's all the rage right now. And the rumors it's coming yeah. soon, hopefully, you know, and, and, uh, we'll see what happens. Now, the other thing that's, that's always intrigued me about, about what you do, Joe, uh, and this is really, you know, for years, is the fact that I know that, that you, for some reason, like to climb up really tall buildings. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of fun if you want to get a different view of an urban landscape. Yeah. And let me, let me just state too, I'm not a climber, you know, I'm not, mm. I don't rock climb on my weekends or anything like that. I'm not sure. a nature photographer by any stretch, uh, but in an urban environment, getting up high sometimes can really be advantageous. You get into a position where very few people ever get a chance to go. So there is a certain uniqueness to that angle and the pictures you're able to produce. Did so you're not free running or anything like that, Joe? No. <laughs> free running? What's what's that? Is it free running? Have, have I got? The, I might have got the name wrong there. Okay, you're 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 more hip than I am. Is that what that is? Free running? I don't know. Parkour? I'm ten years older than you. Do they parkour, call it parkour? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, parkour. Yeah. No, I'm definitely not a poor. You know, I would break my <laughs> neck so quickly. Um, <laughs> but there are these. The, there are these. Um, and I, again, you're right. I, I I can't pull the name out of my head. But there are some daredevils who have like jumped the fences at night at construction sites and whatnot, and just done yeah. videos of themselves just uh, without safety lines or anything like that. Just jumping around at all sorts of heights. Again, not me. Uh, when I go up, I'm thoroughly, uh, you know, I've been thoroughly vetted insurance programs, et cetera, you know, permits, all of that. The, the only really free reign I did have years ago was at the Empire State Building. I had a great relationship with the Empire State Building. There was a, he was a true gentleman of New York, Alex Smirnoff, and he was in charge of what they called the mast operations at the top of that building. And he was enough of a presence and smart enough to know that uh, the Empire State Building isn't just a building. It was designed to be photographed. And so I built a relationship with him. And eventually I, I kind of had carte blanche. Uh, I've, I've climbed that tower numerous times and up and around. My name's not on a single piece of paper. You know, it just I could just climb. So I've been to the very tip of that building, I think, four times. No wow. more. Unfortunately, Alex is gone. And uh, yeah. I wouldn't even I wouldn't even start the process at this point because the amount of paperwork uh, you'd have to drill through to only receive a negative response yeah. is yeah. makes it sort of not worth it. So, right. so, did you did you say you managed to get up to the the, the tip that that to, you know I can picture the top of the Empire State Building, but I, I can't articulate exactly which bit I mean. But uh, there's this this is extra kind of level, isn't there? I, I guess is. A, maybe a way to describe it. Is that the bit you're talking about? 
Yeah, at the very tip of the antenna, there's a red flashing light. And yeah. it warns off the aircraft. And I've been up to that light at least four or five oh, wow. times. Gosh. I feel I've only ever made it. hearing that. <laughs> I've only ever made it to the, the viewing platform, you know, um, and the cage. But that was high enough for me, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great view of New York. You're right. And the beautiful yeah. thing about the Empire State is that you're right in the middle of the island, basically. So north and south are very dramatic views. It's a, it's a very stunning view. I think, uh, Nick and myself, we, we have sort of, you know, pre-planned a trip to New York for a variety of reasons um, at some point in the future when, you know, life normalizes again mm-hmm. at some point. It's definitely going to be one of the things to do for sure. Um, now, uh, Joe, you've, you've completed so many different assignments throughout your career. Um, anything from, you know, shooting, uh, you know, press photography in in new york city to uh to war war zones around the world what was the most harrowing sort of assignment you can you've ever done i've done a very brief amount of um conflict you know areas i I i never really went out seeking conflict let me let me just establish i'm not a war photographer and i have tremendous admiration for those photographers who have done it at a high level and repeatedly do it, put themselves at risk to document these kinds of situations. So at life, I, I did um, a few scenarios, uh, you know, with a panoramic camera. It was sort of aftermath kinds of things in Rwanda or Somalia or Afghanistan or Chechnya, places like that. So, you know, those always have their moments, you know, uh, of, of potential risk and, you go in understanding that and you try to minimize it as best as possible. And it was not an area of photography that I endeavored in extensively. What, what is the real key to doing that kind of work is to have boots on the ground for long periods of time. In other words, really develop a set of contacts and resources and uh, knowledge, thorough knowledge of, of the area in question so that you can photograph effectively. So I've only done it a couple of times. I was in the north of Ireland uh, back in the day. That was my first real bouncing off of international news. I was on the streets of Belfast when uh, Bobby Sands died in the H blocks. Mm. And that was that was pretty hectic, you know, uh, out there on the streets of Belfast. But it's I've always lived more comfortably in the realm of my imagination and the idea of doing uh, stories on people and following them through or a theme or a narrative. I always likened the idea of doing a story at the National Geographic. I, I always likened the, the narrative to be like a clothesline, you know, and I would just hang my pictures on it as I would go. Mm-hmm. Nice way to think about it. I think, uh, I wonder if, uh, did you, you know, if you take those, perhaps the times in, you know, or any of those kind of conflict areas, if you like, have you ever felt unsafe to the point where you thought, is this really worth it? Sure. <laughs> sure. I, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I've, I, I got flown into Somalia from Nairobi. I flew in on a Red Cross plane mm-hmm. and I had made arrangements with a wonderful man, uh, Mohammed, who ran a hotel in downtown Mogadishu called the Sahafi, which is Arabic for journalists. And he would be kind of a resident fixer for journalists who are visiting that very unusual city. And, uh, I had made arrangements with him and the airstrip, it was really just kind of a you know, stretch of sand mm-hmm. north 
of Moog. He said, you know, they'll drop you off there and I'll, I'll come get you. So the Red Cross plane dropped me off. And the pilot said, you know, they uh, said something about, you know, there were landmines, you know, that had been planted on some of the airstrips. He wasn't going to hang around. So he spun the plane around and he took off. And that little Red Cross plane just became a dot in the, in the blue sky. <laughs> and I sat down on my equipment and there was nobody there. And I thought, this might have been really, really dumb, you know, for me to have done this. But, you know, after an hour or so, maybe a bit more, I saw some dust trails and it was uh, Mohammed and, and his, his crew, you know, came and picked me up and got me safely across the green line and to the Sahafi. And then he kind of worked it out with me about what I needed to do to stay safe and photograph in Mogadishu. Wow. To have someone on the ground there like that is just, must be comforting to know that you had someone that you could rely on. Oh, fixers are a wonder and a gift to the photographer. National Geographic had a legendary network of fixers. Um, and, you know, you could plug into these folks, you know, they had a history with the magazine. And if you're going, say, to Moscow or Tokyo, or I mean, you don't speak the language, you have to have somebody there who's facilitating what you're trying to do. Absolutely. But landmines? <laughs> God, <laughs> I couldn't even begin to imagine <laughs> getting off a plane, the the pilot just taking off and knowing that there's a chance I'm surrounded by landmines right at that moment. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it was advisable just to sit down, which is what I did. Photographers, <laughs> yeah. we're good at that. We're we're good at just like <laughs> sitting down and kind of like okay, you know. I always advise folks when I teach, like you know, if they're street shooting or in a city and they're looking for pictures and things aren't going well, I always advise them, well, well, just sit down, you know, yeah. have a find an outdoor cafe, sit down, have a cup of coffee, and just do nothing. Sometimes yeah. the picture will come to you if you're just there, you know, observing life, you know. So the idea of working hard and chugging around. I got to find a picture is not really conducive to good street photography. You have to just do a very, very interested and pleasant wander. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, that, that sounds very similar to what Moose Peterson told us on this podcast a little mm -hmm. while ago, where he said, like, you know, my talent is, you know, I could sit on a rock for nine hours and just look at a hole in the ground for some <laughs> critter to come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Moose can do that. He's, you know, we used to teach together. Uh, Moose and I, and, and, uh, he really can see, you know, and is patient with the beauty of nature and, you know, letting it come to him. I'm the more impatient sort. I, I like a subject that talks back to me. You know, I like people. I always used to tease him. I said, uh, you know, I've never met a landscape picture that I couldn't make better by putting a person in front of it, you know, because I'm a people photographer, you know, and Moose and I would have this pleasant, you know, sort of back and forth, you know, kidding each other about things. But yeah, my landscape photography is an art and a craft that I'm not particularly um, terrific at, you know, enjoy it. I admire it. It's done well, you know, it's phenomenal. But I tend to be more urban, you know, uh, I tend to be, uh, you know, uh, a people photographer, portraiture, stories, features. I always call it a face and a place, you know, a storytelling picture of someone in an environment that helps tell their story, you know, shopkeeper, mm. or fisherman, or whatever it might be. Now, you also 
uh, very well known uh, in, in the world of photography education as the master of flash. Um, how, how did you develop that relationship with, uh, with speed lights or artificial lighting originally? Well, I, I would debunk the whole master thing that, you know, <laughs> photographers are never a master of anything because photography sure. is the kind of field that'll just, every time you get a little cocksure of yourself or overconfident, photography itself will rise right up and kick you right in the ass, you know? And uh, so you have to be careful of that. Yeah. Um, I, I got um, tuned into Speedlights because I had to. My first cover story for the National Geographic was the contract was for 26 weeks of work, hmm. 26 seven-day weeks, wow. half a year. And with the editing, it took a year. And it was called The Sense of Sight, and it ran as a cover in 42 pages. And I was all over the world by myself. And I was flying coach, you know, uh, as we did. And I had a battered Halliburton and with me that was, I would throw in the hold of the airplane, keep my cameras on board with me. So I had a duffel with personal stuff and my tripod would be in there. And then the, the Halliburton back in the day, you could lock your, your, you know, equipment case, throw it on the airplane, but a great deal of space in that old Halliburton was occupied by film. You know, I mean, now we have tiny little cards that hold thousands of pictures. I would have 300, 400 rolls of Kodachrome in that Halliburton and it took up a lot of space. So I had no real mm. extra room, if you would, for uh, lighting. So I uh, got familiar with, because I had to, the idea of using speed lights as a little accent or additional pop or something that would facilitate a scenario that I was involved in. So yeah, it, it was... Uh, a necessary learning curve that I had to undertake, you know, when I first started working with speedlights. <clears throat> so you've written a number of uh, a number of books about um, about speedlights and about lighting, and I th I think you've uh, you mentioned at the beginning that you spent the time during lockdown um, to write a new book. I did. Um, yep, it's called The Real Deal: Field Notes from the Life of a Working Photographer, and just. There's learning involved, you know, uh, to be sure, lessons to be learned, uh, but they're more experience and life-driven. It's it's not a uh, so much a put the light here book, because sure. at this point in time, there's so much information on YouTube and various sites about where to put the light that if you don't know where to put the light at this point, you know, there's just no hope, you know, so... Um, <laughs> You know, just tune into all that stuff. There's plenty of stuff that'll give you the f-stop and the shutter speed. This is really more about, um, and my editor and I, we talked about it. It's, it's not, uh, as we discussed, it's not like a super highway for like the answering of a question. Like there's books out there about posing, for instance, or something like that. At the end of the book, you can pose someone you you have a good grasp of it this is not that it's more this is more of a country road not so much a super highway it's a it's a, a, a scenes from the life of a photographer and there's also a fair amount of learning in it where i discuss lighting and how to work a situation and how to um, adapt and and we were just talking about fixers there's a chapter in there about fixers and how you can enlist the assistance of someone because i oftentimes get in educational scenarios, uh, you know, at workshops, like I really want to make my pictures different and uh, I'm going on this tour. And oftentimes I would 
my response is, okay, try to carve out time apart from the tour. Find yourself a fixer and spend a day by yourself. Not so much, even though it's wonderful to be part of a tour and it can get you to places, you're not, it's not going to result potentially in any sort of unique photography. If you really kind of research a place and say, oh, I'd like to go to this particular farming area or something like that, that I'm intrigued by, then you can kind of do some research and find yourself someone who's connected enough to bring you there, you know? So I actually have, you know, it's real. I don't know. It's about 350 pages and uh, it uh, won't be out uh, uh, too soon. We were hoping for Christmas, but it appears now it will, uh, the actual physical book will be available in January, it's looking like, given supply chain issues, which are happening to every industry, uh, the ebook should be out actually pretty soon, uh, within like two weeks, I think, as uh, a rough ballpark for the delivery of the ebook. Will we be able to get a copy of the physical book in in Europe, or is it US only at the moment? No, uh, absolutely. Um, Great. The publisher is Rocky Nook, and they have a substantial UK presence. In Great. fact, they, except for this past year they would routinely go to the photography show in Birmingham and their book sales were terrific. You know, I always loved the photography show in Birmingham. I, I really do. People are congenial and passionate and there's just something about the spirit of that show. That's very, very enjoyable. I missed we, it this past yeah, year. Yeah. We were, uh, Nick, Nick and myself went, uh, went this year. Um, and, uh, although it was different, it was a little bit smaller. Um, but it was also a lot, a lot more personable. I think yeah. um, it was uh, it was really and you know it was really great to to meet up with uh, you know with friends that we hadn't seen you know in a couple of years and you know and uh, we had an opportunity to to meet uh, a number of our former guests there in person for the first time ever <laughs> you know which is uh, which really was uh, it was a lot of fun um, so oh, this is this is probably a good point to say hi Tommy <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, listening in your car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Make sure you don't, you know, don't watch the YouTube video in in the car. Make sure you listen to the audio version. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good advice. Good advice. <laughs> there you go. Joe McNally told you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was a, it, it was fun. I mean, um, again, you know, it wasn't necessarily, um, you know, a show of the same size. I think even actually even physically it was a little bit smaller. I think it was only two halls rather than the, the usual three or four. So yeah. you know, it was physically it was a little bit smaller, but um but there were some positive aspects to take away. Like for us, for example, we were able to talk to people. Um people had a lot more time. And so um we, we created a whole episode at the show which was uh, which was really super fun. That's um, great. Yeah. It's a it's a as I say, it's a very congenial show. I've always enjoyed it. Cool. Now um You've got a number of workshops um, in the planning um, over the next uh, couple of months. Where's, where's the next endeavor leading you to? Well, right now we have planned with Nikon UK, based in London, uh, two days of a lighting workshop, lighting and portrait workshop at, at the Ashridge House, which I have not been to, but looks absolutely magnificent. And just the classic, you know, I think it does, I think the physical structure dates back to medieval times. And magnificent halls and rooms, and staircases, and just a beautiful environment to shoot. And working in conjunction with uh, Nikon UK and uh, Neil Freeman and Richie, uh, wonderful 
photographers and educators. And that's coming up in the third week of November of this year. And fingers crossed, you know, that uh, that all comes together. You know, COVID is always kind of this shadow in the background still, you know, of what we yeah. attempt to do. So, and then uh, we have a workshop. Oh, Lord, I, you know, I'm teaching with my friends, Amy Vitale and Tamara Lackey, wonderful photographers, wonderfully talented people. And we're bringing a group to the Amazon Basin in Ecuador in February which is wow. a trip that we have now pushed back for two years, but we're finally going, we are going to go this coming February. Ecuador is trending in a very positive direction in terms of uh, COVID and, and uh, our entire group is vaccinated and we feel very positive that, that we are, are going. Yeah. So, yeah. And then we have a, a wonderful workshop that is a first really. Uh, I have a very dear friend, Lisa Politi, and Ari Espe, they they are partners in life as well as photography. And Lisa is the producer. Ari is a fellow teacher. And we are doing a New York City Christmas lights workshop in the, in December, which should be a lot of fun. And the uh, you know just I, I love the idea of doing a workshop in New York because I've always loved to photograph in the city. And I don't get a chance to do it that much anymore because of schedule and this and that distance. Mm. So getting into the city for six straight days and hitting the streets is always, uh, I always get charged up about it. New York is constantly vibrant and fun to photograph. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a while. Um, it's been a while. I mean, as I said earlier, and Nick, Nick and myself, we've been planning on um, hopping over to New York for, for a little while. We've had a number of guests over there. Um, and there's a, a number of challenges, I think, that we've set ourselves um, particularly do with street photography over in New York City. So that's uh, hopefully that should happen at some point next year, maybe, Nick? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I have to <laughs> cram, cram, a, cram a couple of weeks there, I think. We've got a lot to do. <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's a resounding uh, yes from Nick there. Yeah, damn it, we're going. <laughs> yeah, I'd go tomorrow. <laughs> well, see, the thing, the thing is, um, I two years ago, um, so I have family over in Canada and... Um, so two years ago, uh, I was planning to go over to uh, Nova Scotia with, with my wife and, you know, meet up with family. And, and my plan was to basically um, level up my landscape photography because uh, much like yourself, my landscape photography is not particularly great. And so I thought I'd take this as an opportunity to, um, to you know, practice and, and get some opportunities over there. Um, then COVID hit. Then we thought, ah, well you know, by next year, everything's going to be fine. And of course, 2021 travel didn't happen either. Um, and so now I think we're looking at 22. Yeah, I mean, inch by inch, we seem to be getting a bit better. So it's going to require patience. I remember coming home on March 15th in 2020 hmm. and saying, ah, you know, it'll be fine. I'll, I'll go to the Olympics and, you know, this will be over in a couple months. They'll get it managed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I remember exactly yeah. the same thing. Like in, uh, by March time, um, you know, we were thinking, oh, we've got, we've got flights booked, you know, for August. Um, it'd be fine by then. It'll be fine, you know, by August, no problem. And then August comes along and I remember, you know, my, my wife and I looking at each other going like, how silly was that even thinking? I mean, there was no way, you know, by August that, uh, mm -hmm. that anything was going to open up. So Joe, I've seen you I, well, I've seen many, uh, many videos um, of of yourself on YouTube. And I mean, I certainly have learned a lot uh, f 
from your you know your educational videos on there and i'm sure many of our listeners and um and uh, and viewers have as well um how did you first get involved in the education side of photography wow um good question i, I you know i a little bit by osmosis i guess um I was one of the original team leaders at the Eddie Adams workshop. I was a team leader there for 14 years. And, uh, you know, uh, I also got asked by Maine photo workshops. Back in the day, the Maine workshops were kind of a really a powerful teaching vehicle uh, in the photo industry. And uh, I had to fill in for an instructor that had a conflict and all of a sudden I was thrown into a week-long workshop for the first time in my life. I was like, uh-oh, you know. But I, I found, I, I survived. The class enjoyed it. They felt good about the teaching. I enjoyed the uh, camaraderie and the, com you know, the company of, of photographers. We would, you know, do class, do some shooting, go out, have a beer, talk about it. And so I found it to be convivial and, and uh, enjoyable. So uh, I, you know started to, you know, open up a little bit in terms of schedule, in terms of, uh, you know, being available to teach. And the ball kind of took off from there because teaching uh, has become a major part of this industry. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you balance your time between, you know, assignments and the, you know, the educational stuff that you do. It can be a little bit difficult because, you know, workshops, especially like teaching for National Geographic, which I've done many times, that geo will book you, um, you know, a year and two months out, you know, and so you have this isolated commitment out there in the middle of your calendar for next year. And sometimes that would be kind of like a thing to, you'd have to navigate around. Mm. Uh, so yeah, because assignments come up oftentimes at the last minute, you know, and oh, can't do it because, you know, back in the day, it was a softer sort of thing travel and all that was a little more flexible airplane <clears throat> refunds and all of that. But now, you know, if you commit to a workshop, you got to stick to it because people, uh, you know, make plans around it. They buy tickets that are not refundable. They commit, you know, finances to it, et cetera. So it's a big responsibility. If they are looking to come to one of your workshops, you really have to deliver and work very hard to give them a good experience and, and teach well. Are there particular aspects that you um, enjoy teaching more than more than others, Joe? Sure. I, you know, I like, you know, the, the critiques, I think, are very important. And, uh, you know, I lead the critiques in our classes and I enjoy the banter and the back and forth, especially if people are, you know, disagree with my assessment of a photograph. You know, there's a good back and forth and a lot of learning takes place in that process. And, and critiques are very powerful for a photographer. You know, you need to have another voice in your head, you know, um, years ago I took, as a student, I took Jay Maisel's workshop, his workshops at the bank, which are no longer, but, but, uh, I, I just really wanted to, uh, submit work and get some critiquing going and have another voice, uh, you know, sort of looking at, at what I was doing and informing me about things I was doing right or wrong. And Jay informed me quite often about, you know, the substantial number of things I was doing wrong. <laughs> Jay was, was always direct, you know, in his assessments of your work, you know, and he still would be, you know, he's, he's moved out of the bank now he's out in Brooklyn, but, but, 
the bank itself was a formidable experience, his, his residence down in the Bowery. So that was all part of it. I don't think you can beat direct feedback, if I'm honest with you. Yeah, it's not for everyone. And, you know, I think you find more and more these these days that um, ah, you kind of float around the bit of feedback you're trying to give to, you know, to, you know, tart it up and make it as soft as possible. And nah, 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 I'm I'm not on board with that. I I prefer something far more direct. Say, this is great. This is absolutely fantastic. The way you did that, the way you did that, this, shocking. What were you thinking? <laughs> I'd much rather, rather receive that. <laughs> yeah, I have a, I have a whole, well, it's not a whole chapter. There's, there's short stories, you know, in, in the book um, that I've written about. And I, I don't exclude myself from, you know, discussion here. Um, and so there is a chapter or small field note, and it's called What was, what was I thinking? <laughs> and, that, and that's me in a trash bin surrounded or filled up with all my useless transparencies, right. looking oh. at them incredulously as to like how the hell and why the hell did I shoot that? Because yeah. um, any photographer worth their salt will admit that they fail probably more frequently than they succeed. Oh, and when I define success, I mean... Yes, you have to be successful on a regular basis, but there's success, which means you please the client, you shoot a nice picture, but those days produce images that are serviceable, nice, wonderful, good, all that sort of stuff, but not incredibly memorable, perhaps, you know, you do a good job. Hopefully you don't fail on a regular basis, but when you're really striving for a certain level of work, um, you know, that, that level of work only comes around every once in a while. Uh, where you you intersect with the arc of the job in a really special way, and truly resonant pictures uh, result from that. Memorable pictures, pictures that have impact. That's what we all strive for, and we fall short of that a great deal. I, I see that with the like two and a half thousand images that I take, and the, the like fifty usable ones out of that maybe, <laughs> you know. And I'm being um, optimistic with that. <laughs> Yeah. Usually. The editing process, you need somebody, you need an editor in your life. I mean, photographers, some photographers are really good editors. I, I'm, I'm very hard on myself. You know, I critique myself pretty severely and I, and I break things down pretty, pretty hard. Um, I had thankfully came through a tradition of really great editors, you know, Larry DeSantis at the UPI, Danny Farrell at the New York daily news, Bill Douthat down at geographic, John, Dominus, uh, John Lowengard, Mel Scott, all these people were legendary editors. And I really got schooled, sometimes quite severely, on mm. my efforts. So I, I take that forward and try to use that as a barometer for how I've done on a job. Because honestly, as a photographer, you know, you know that when you're out in the field, you know when it's working and when it's not, you can feel it in your gut. Mm. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And your gut's rarely wrong. If you feel like, oh man, this job just didn't work. It's not going to somehow transform itself when you get back to the computer. It's not, yeah. There's not going to be surprises yeah. there. Like, oh wow. Yeah. This is actually really nice. No, there's just going to be a bad picture seen bigger, you know, <laughs> and in the aftermath. So you have to really maintain a very strict sort of watchdog aspect in your own head about your own work. 
because you, mm-hmm. it's it's easy to get kind of uh, fall in love with your own myth. Yeah, and it's you know very often it's it's a time factor that uh, opens your eyes on that as well. You know when you look back, especially on social media or something. You know when you're, you know uh, when you're very easily able to look back at um, at things. You know at work that you've done three, four, five years ago, and you realize how what you thought was amazing back then now really doesn't really cut it at all. And it's you know it's just because you're maybe you're getting a little bit of objectivity back. Um, and that's an important experience for any creative, no matter whether you're a photographer or a musician or, you know, whatever. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Jay, do you play an instrument by any chance? One of the regrets of my life. I do not. Ah, oh, what a shame. <laughs> so we're, we're getting a camera shake band together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm We've afraid got lots I... of guitarists. We're, you could sing. <laughs> you don't want me to do that. <laughs> no, that would that would drive people right out of the pubs. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, we we may pop <laughs> pop up to your um your your course um that you're you're running here in uh in mid November because we're literally just around the corner from uh from where yeah. you're where you're holding that workshop. Uh, oh, by all means, we'll, we'll by all means. Yeah, yeah. Ashford's house get... is beautiful. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it's literally like ten miles away or something. Yeah. Yeah. Again, fingers crossed, you know, fingers crossed that, uh, you know, there's a lot of distressing reports from the UK, but, you know, there's also some good reports. So, you know, like every place in the world, got to, you know, balance. There's no such thing anymore as risk-free travel. You have to really balance it and assess it. How how have you found air travel um, since things have opened up again? Do Do you find it more distressing than before? Just generally like the act of traveling by plane? I don't. I mean, it's 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 a little more arduous in that you have to wear a mask, you know, for the whole flight oh. and all of that. But uh, I feel pretty confident on the airlines. They've taken it upon themselves. I think most of the, the good airlines really take it very seriously and really clean the airplanes. So I feel um, good about the, uh, the environment, I've, albeit limited, you know, because I've only done two round trips, New York, Tokyo, New York, New York, L.A., New York since COVID hit. So mm-hmm. I don't have any bad experiences to report, but then again, my, my flying time in the age of COVID has been very limited so mm-hmm. far. That's one of my main concerns. We're, um, you know, we're, tr- we're trying to get back to Germany. I have family in Germany too. Um, so, you know, we haven't been able to, to do that in the last couple of years. So that may be on the cards, but I'm a little bit, I don't know cautious still at this point especially because you know as you as you mentioned like the numbers in the uk are not currently looking that great so but then again apparently and this is what i read in the the newspaper this morning um so now our government is saying that we're we may be looking at at the peak right now and that you know numbers are supposed to naturally fall off over the next few weeks that's also possible we'll see depends on who you choose to believe of course that's uh... yeah we'll see (laughs) Yeah, I think we're all living our lives like that now. We'll just have to see. Yeah, absolutely. So we have come to the end of episode 79 um, of the Camera Shake podcast uh, with today's guest, Joe McNally. Joe, thank you so much for being our guest today. Um, It was an absolute education. Well, thank you guys. It was uh, a fun conversation. And uh, as I say, I always enjoy the company of photographers and just shooting the breeze about making pictures. It's, It's often fun and as we say, tall tales will be told. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So hopefully we, uh, we we may be able to meet you in person um, in a few weeks over at Ashridge House. Um, let's, let's hope all that comes together. It'd be phenomenal. Um, now, for all of you 
Again, just a reminder, if you have been listening to the audio version of this podcast, uh, go right ahead over on YouTube. You can see our beautiful faces in full Technicolor, of course. Uh, whilst you are there, don't forget to hit the subscribe button, uh, ring that bell, all of the good stuff that YouTube is usually telling you to do. Uh, that would really help us out. However, though, if you are on Apple Podcasts, write us a little review. We'd love that too. That being said, that's episode 79. We'll see you next week. Bye.